Amen. Please be seated. Um, our sermon text is in two parts this morning. Uh, it's an amazing stretch of text. What I want you to, to uh, be looking for and asking God to help you respond rightly to as we hear his word is the heart of Jesus Christ. So let's start in chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Hear the word of God. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. 
And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and seas obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we need to see your heart this morning because it's only as we see your heart and your spirit enables us to do that that our own hearts are going to be changed. That's the great treasure that we pray for now. Those of us who already know you need our hearts to be strengthened. We're like the disciples in that boat. We followed you into the boat. The storm has come, and now everything's in play. We doubt your goodness. We we doubt your wisdom. We see our own weakness, and we need to be strengthened to follow you. And then there are those who hear the call to discipleship come from you, and they count the cost, and they are tempted to believe that the cost is too high, and they're tempted to to break away, to fall away, to stop listening to you, to stop listening to their Christian friends, to stop coming to church. They're tempted to break off because you seem so demanding, and you are demanding, but you're so good, and we pray for them you would show them in your mercy your heart and call them so that today by your spirit's power not their own strength they would rise and follow you so save and sanctify we pray in your name amen okay so i know you have two questions one question is how in the world did we get from chapter 7 verse 12 to the end of chapter 9 right that's one question and then why in the world Did we start with the end of chapter 9 and then go back to chapter 8? Those are reasonable questions, and I want to explain what we're doing. Um, First of all, you'll remember when we started the study of the Sermon on the Mount, we started at the back end. We did the the last half of chapter 7, 
as a way of seeing how the sermon concluded so that we could know when we entered the sermon how we were supposed to interpret it. And in a sense, the reason we started at chapter 9, the end of chapter 9 today, is for the same reason. Because the end of chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, are the end of a block of text that begins in chapter 8, verse 1. And they help us. They not only establish a connection to what we're going to see in chapter 10, but they are Matthew's summary, retrospective summary, uh, so we understand what he's been telling us about in chapters 8 and 9. And so this morning, and really these two chapters, we're going to do chapters 8 and 9 in two weeks. This morning we're going to do chapter 8, and then we're going to do chapter 9 next week. And it's because in these chapters, what Matthew gives us is a series of rapid-fire episodes of Jesus' interactions with various people. Did you notice that? It's very different from the Sermon on the Mount, where we have this extended block of teaching where not a lot of action happens, but there's a lot of content that Jesus is pouring into his disciples. And Matthew's gospel is set up so that there are alternating action, which is like chapters 1 through 4, Big block of teaching, Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. Action, chapters 8 and 9. Big block of teaching, chapter 10. Action, chapters 11 through 12. Big block of teaching, chapter 13. We can go on. Matthew's woven his gospel together very carefully. And so he wants us in these two chapters that are between, that connect us between the first big block of teaching, which is Sermon on the Mount, and the second big block of teaching, which is chapter 10, he wants us to get a picture of Jesus' heart. We spent a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount thinking about the Father, didn't we? And now we see in Jesus' interactions with men and women over these two chapters, and children even, Matthew is showing us the, the heart of Jesus in a wonderful way. And, and what we're going to see is four things this morning. First, what Jesus feels about the lostness of men. And that's his compassion. And then three things that Jesus does about the lostness of men or in response to the lostness of men. The touch of Jesus, the reach of Jesus, and the call of Jesus. So the compassion of Jesus, the touch of Jesus, the reach of Jesus, and the call of Jesus. Let's, let's begin uh, at the end in uh, chapter 9, 35 through 38, the compassion of Jesus. And I have to tell you that I think these are some of the most uh, moving verses in the entire Gospel of Matthew. They are so powerful. Uh, do you realize that in these verses... What the Holy Spirit does for us is he ushers us into the holy courts of Jesus' mind and heart. I wonder if you notice that. This is something new in the Gospel of Matthew. It hasn't happened before. The Holy Spirit, Matthew takes us, the Holy Spirit uses Matthew to take us all the way in so that we see what Jesus saw. And so... And so also, we're able to put our finger on Jesus' emotional pulse through this text so that we know what Jesus felt in a situation. Do you notice how Matthew describes it? Uh, verse 36, when he saw the crowds. See, now we're standing behind Jesus' eyes. He had compassion for them. And we know exactly what Jesus felt. It's the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that we have a, a statement about Jesus' own emotional state and reaction. 
It's very significant. He had compassion for them. And now, why? Because when you stand behind his eyes, you see what he sees through this text. And he looks out at the crowds, and he doesn't see a problem. He doesn't see a burden. He's not bothered. He sees people who are harassed and helpless, who are like sheep without a shepherd. If you want a window into the heart of Jesus Christ, I cannot think of a better one than that, short of the cross. What a privilege. What Jesus sees about the lostness of men is he sees symptoms that are very, very sad, aren't they? He looks at all these people. He's had a lot of experience up to now. I mean, from the end of chapter 4 all the way now through the end of chapter 9, Jesus has been doing a lot of ministry Uh, some of it with his disciples, some of it with uh, the crowds and the communities in Galilee. And and so in kind of a summary fashion, uh, Matthew gives us uh, what Jesus' conclusions are based on the data points of his exposure to people. And when he looks out at people, his ultimate conclusion about their needs, about their brokenness, is that they're harassed and helpless. Amazing. He looks at people. He looks at us. If you're outside of Christ this morning, this is exactly how he sees you. That you're harassed and helpless under a power that you can't control, that you can't manage, and that you can't overpower. You're in over your head. What it means to be a Christian is not to have your life together. It means that you admitted it. And you found in Jesus a refuge for being in over your head. Not with the kind of struggles that we have in life, uh, money problems and health problems and kid problems and relationship problems. Those are all just symptoms of a much more serious disease, which is... The second thing that Jesus sees, the reason why we're harassed and helpless is because we are like sheep without a shepherd. You see, when Jesus looks at at us, when he looks at these crowds, when he thinks about people, he thinks... Ultimately, he gets to the bottom, right? He looks past the symptoms. He looks beneath the symptoms to the disease. And the fundamental disease that affects human beings is not a situational problem. It's not the fact that we're under pressure, we're understressed, understress. No one is understressed. I can't even believe I said that. That we're under stress. I mean, we think our biggest problems are situational, don't we? That if that relationship just got fixed or the money question, you know, if I was just a Facebook, you know, IPO guy and everything would be okay, give me a break. Or if our health was okay or our kids weren't going sideways or we were married or maybe we weren't married and everything would be okay. And you know what? It's just scratching the surface. To be sheep without a shepherd means you're vulnerable. It means you're exposed. 
It means you're in danger. It means you're in peril. It, it means that you're living contrary to your nature. That's what Jesus sees about human beings. It's what he sees about us. The disease is, that, is not a situational one. It's a relational one. That's the basic problem with all people, is that we are living contrary to our nature. God made us to be under him in the way that sheep are cared for by a shepherd, in the way that sheep are led by a shepherd, in the way that sheep are protected by a shepherd. And we don't live that way. We wander off. And Jesus sees that the ultimate point, the ultimate burden in people's lives is that they are living shepherdlessly. When we look at ourselves through Jesus' eyes, that's what we'll see. And that means that the remedy for that affliction is going to fit the disease, right? If, if the fundamental problem in your life and in my life is that we live shepherdlessly, then the solution is not going to be found by having the money problem cured or the relationship problem cured at this level, horizontal level. It's only going to be cured to the degree that we have a relationship with the shepherd restored. And that's exactly what he's come to do. It's absolutely amazing. You see, because that's what Jesus sees when he looks at men. But how does he feel? He sees that problem. How does he feel about that problem? And Matthew, because the Holy Spirit wants him to be the messenger of this, Matthew tells us that he had compassion on those shepherdless sheep. That's a strong word. It's a beautiful word. The English word compassion does not capture everything. It's, this word is like, a, is like a bouquet that wraps together all these beautiful realities. It, love is in there. Mercy is in there. A desire to protect is in there. Um, uh, faithfulness is in there. Identification is in there. Sympathy and empathy. That's a big word. It's very much like the Old Testament word that gets translated loving kindness or steadfast love. We've talked about that before. Hesed. It's like that word. And when Jesus looks and he sees the problem, he doesn't say, serves him right. His heart, the best way to translate this, I, thought, I think, is what I read in one commentator. His heart went out to them. And I love that because because of the picture that it really gives us. It takes us into the very center of the gospel. What is the gospel ultimately about? Is that in the face of our sin, the heart of God against whom we sin, His heart went out to us. Do you think about God that way? That His heart went out to you in your rebellion. That when you were ignoring Him and belittling Him and keeping Him at the periphery of your life, when your heart wasn't going out to Him... His heart was going out to you, and before you even knew it, his heart went all the way out at the cross in the gift of his son. It's absolutely incredible. And so you just see Jesus here embodying, being a chip off of his father's block. God so loved the world that his heart 
went out to the world in rebellion uh, against him. And he sent his son and gave his son. And the son stands on the earth, looks at all the crowds, looks at all the people, looks at all of us, sees right past the symptoms and sees that the fundamental disease afflicting all human beings, the nature of sin, is that we throw off the shepherd's crook, we wander, we want to live shepherdlessly, and every single one of our problems flows from that reality. And Jesus doesn't say, I wipe my hands clean of those wicked sheep. He sends his heart out after us. I love that. That makes me happy. It makes me want to follow that shepherd. How could I keep my heart back from him? How could I doubt him when I was in the midst of trouble and agony and uncertainty? How could I question his goodness? He is absolutely amazing. You know, in the end, it's not going to be arguments about the origin of the universe, while those are important. It's not going to be arguments about gay marriage, while that's very important. It's not going to be arguments about what kind of society or economic view we need to have. In the end, everything turns on the person of Jesus Christ. We can talk about the worldview of Christianity and its strengths over against a naturalistic, anti-God worldview all day long. And I'm confident that the Christian worldview will hold together and is logically coherent, right? And, And a naturalistic worldview collapses in on itself. But in the end, if I've proven that to you or convinced you of that, but I haven't shown you Jesus Christ in a way where your heart is compelled to follow him as a person, then I've failed as as a pastor. And you don't know what you need to know in order to be saved because the core of Christianity is a call by a person to a person. And here he is, and he's beautiful, and he's gracious, and he's strong, and he does amazing things. What does that compassion lead him to do? I mean, he sees the lostness of men. He feels compassion for the lostness of men. Now, what does he do about it? And the first thing that we see him doing, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 8, is that he touches the unclean. Now, and this is the leper. I'm thinking about the leper in verses 1 through 4, and then the, the healing episode with Peter's mother-in-law and the multitudes in verses uh, 14 through 17. But, you know, the leper, it's, it's absolutely amazing. We don't, because our, we're not uh, steeped in biblical categories and our Old Testament you know, understanding of things is, is very rusty, we miss the power of this episode. This is so radical. I mean, it might make sense to us, if the guy who approached him was suffering from AIDS. I mean, you think about the disease, whatever it is in our culture, that is the ultimate taboo, the ultimate thing that we look at and say, that is unclean, I need to keep away from that. And a leper was that in the first century. And this leper comes to Jesus and and, and he, it, presumably he's heard about what Jesus has been doing. His reputation has gone before him. And he comes to Jesus and asks Jesus for help. says, if you are willing, I'll be clean. And he calls him Lord. 
Now, you know, in the wilderness, when you read the book of Leviticus, there's a big deal placed on leprosy. Leprosy in the Old Testament, in the Bible, is not what we would call Hansen's disease. It's a broader category in the Bible. It refers to any kind of chronic skin condition that was visible, and it was chronic. It wasn't temporary. And, and the, the law made it very clear that those people uh, not only were disqualified from being able to worship, but they were excluded and isolated from the community, and they needed to live outside the camp. And you should read uh, Leviticus 13 this afternoon. Because what you'll learn is that lepers needed to live on the outskirts of the community and they needed, to, they needed to call out when they walked around, unclean, unclean, because if they touched somebody, that person would be contaminated. So they had to give people warning. Now this leper has lived that experience. And that might seem harsh to us, but we've got to remember that the reason the law was like that is because in the center of the camp was the Holy of Holies where God himself dwelt. And the only way God could dwell in the midst of sinful Israel was if there were a series of protective barriers, some of them physical and some of them just uh, regulations and restrictions like the, the rules relating to lepers. Because that holiness was dangerous in the midst of a sinful people. Right? When Nadab and Abihu went in and offered strange fire, they died. When when Uzzah just reached out to touch the ark as it was falling in 2 Samuel 6, he, 6, he struck dead. The holiness of God is taken most seriously by God himself. And so the leper was excluded and isolated. And, and he comes up to Jesus now. I mean, do you feel this? You feel the drama? He comes up to Jesus. And he is the ultimate uh, dirty, unclean figure in the first century world. And he says, if you will, you can make me clean. And we know that Jesus has the power with just a word from the very next episode, what he does with a centurion servant, the very next episode, all he has to do is speak a word and he'll be cleansed. But Jesus doesn't just speak a word to the leper. How does he respond? He stretches out his arms. He does what no one else has been willing to do for the leper. The leper is no no one's touch. And Jesus heals this man by reaching out, even though he doesn't need to, to touch him. Now, what should happen if Jesus was an ordinary man is the leper would still be a leper and Jesus would now be unclean. But do you notice that something radically different happens? Jesus, the Holy One, is able to transmit his holiness to this man and cleanse him? It's absolutely amazing. Friends, that's how Jesus works. You might feel yourself to be a leper. You might feel yourself to be unclean. You come to Jesus and you say, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And I guarantee on the authority of God's word, that Jesus' answer will always be, if you approach him in sincerity like that, will always be, I will be clean. How could he do such a thing? Well, we get a hint in verses 14 through 17, the second healing episode in chapter 8, where... uh, Matthew describes how Jesus has dealt with Peter's mother-in-law. 
brief little window, tantalizing window, into the real-life setting of one of the apostles. We know that Peter has a wife now, right? Or at least had a wife. We know from 1 Corinthians 9. His wife went with him while he did, did ministry. We know that Peter hasn't left his wife. You might have thought that from chapter 4. He hasn't. And she's sick, and notice what Jesus does. Touches her and heals her. And then that evening... They bring all the multitudes to him. He exercises uh, demons out of some of them and then cures the others who are suffering from physical disease. And then Matthew sums it up by, by referring to the passage that Stuart read for us, Isaiah 53, quotes verse 4, and, and Jesus' healing. He says, Jesus' healing of these people was to fulfill the prophecy about the suffering servant that he took all our illnesses and bore our diseases. Well, how did he do that? He took them away by bearing them himself. You see that? He didn't just come in as a magician. Now, see, this is important. Because what the compassion of Jesus does again and again over these two chapters is doesn't just come in and wave a magic wand, though he has the power to do that. He could, he could, he, we know he can expel demons with a word from the last part of the chapter. We know he can cure the, the centurion's servant at a distance without even seeing him, just with a word. So Jesus has that power, but he's not willing to do that all the time. The way he heals is by identifying with the people that he's healing. If he just came in as a superhero, an avenger, you know, some kind of magician, then his healing would not assure us that it was full of compassion. Okay? Now, the reason this is so important to get this is because it's, how, it's a lens through which we see the cross accurately. I want you to think about that leper again. What happened? The Holy One touches the leper, and, and, and what happens is all of that uncleanness lifts off of the leper, and all of the holiness of Jesus goes to the leper and restores him. What happens according to verse 17? How is it that Jesus takes our illnesses and our diseases? By bearing them himself. Friends, what happened at the cross is that Jesus came to be touched. We see that Jesus came to be touched first by our skin in his incarnation and then ultimately by our sin in his crucifixion. The whole reason he came was to do on a vast scale what we see him doing on a micro scale here, to come into the midst of all of our illnesses, all our diseases, and of course our greatest disease is our sin that we live shepherdlessly, we wander off from God, we rebel against his rule, and Jesus has taken all of that uncleanness. He is literally made the untouchable one on the cross to be touched by our sin completely. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when it says that he the Father made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus on the cross is saying, yes, I will be clean. Let me take your sin. Let me lift that burden of your disease off of you. Let me carry it and bear it to the end on the cross for you. I will be clean. 
the touch of Jesus is amazing. Remember what I said before? What was in the center of the camp? The Holy of Holies. Remember that? And what was in the outmost orbit? The lepers. You know what happens at Calvary? The Holy of Holies gets up and moves to the outside of the camp. Do you realize that that's what that... Do you realize that's the whole reason the tabernacle was set up the way it was? The whole reason the temple architecture is designed the way it is, the whole reason that you and I should be reading the book of Leviticus over and over and over again, yes, I'll say it again, is because the book of Leviticus is a set of lenses so that we can rightly understand the radical nature of what God was willing to do at Calvary. It's why the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 13, he suffered outside the gates. That should just shock us. It's scandalous that the Holy One himself goes to the place, changes places with the unholy so that the unholy can go all the way into the Holy of Holies. Why was the, why was the temple curtain torn? Those are your privileges and all because of the touch of Jesus. The second thing we see Jesus doing because of his compassion is his reach, and I need to hurry up here. I'm getting carried away. And this has to refer, this refers to Jesus' interaction with the Gentiles. And, and Matthew gives us two episodes here in this chapter that involve Gentiles. The first one is obvious with the centurion. Easier to miss the second one, which has to do with the two demon-possessed men where Jesus goes at the end of chapter 8, verses 28 through 34, he's, he's moving toward Gentile territory, an area called the Decapolis, where there were 10 uh, essentially Greek cities. These are non-Jewish cities. Okay, and Matthew gives us a contrast here. What Jesus is willing to do because of his compassion is reach out not only to Jews, but he's also showing his disciples who are going to need to know this, that from the beginning his ministry is about reaching out beyond Israel to include the nations. And every single one of us in this room has reason to rejoice over that. Because if he hadn't been that kind of savior, if his compassion had just been limited to Israel, you and I would not be joined to the covenant. So look at the first one, the centurion. Amazing. What Jesus does here is this is a taboo. Again, he keeps crossing these lines, right? I mean, not only is Jesus helping a Gentile, controversial enough, but he's helping a Roman Gentile. Wow. That's the, he's a member of the empire that's oppressing Israel. And not just a Roman, but a Roman soldier. And not just a Roman soldier, but an officer. And the centurion approaches Jesus in a way that acknowledges his authority and power. And Jesus says something, has a reaction that, that this is the only place in the book of Matthew where Matthew says that Jesus marveled, verse 10. Ordinarily, and in every other occasion, that word describes people's reaction to Jesus, not Jesus' reaction to people. So this is a big deal. 
And he says something very remarkable. In the presence of his disciples, I mean, can you imagine? You just came off the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus, and you had him teach you. You've responded to his call. You've left your nets in your fishing boat. You've been up on the mountain with Jesus. You come back into town, and this centurion, this Roman, this guy who's, you know, if a leper was was a, a persona non grata, certainly the centurion is even more that. And now here is the one you're following saying, in your presence, hey, guess what? This guy's faith is bigger than yours. Bigger than anyone else that Jesus has encountered. And, and it's a very important lesson because what Jesus is doing is he's redefining the people of God here. And his disciples need to see that. That the compassion of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, his desire to be a shepherd is bigger than Israel. It includes all the nations. And now, now what it means to be a member of the people of God has nothing to do with ethnicity has nothing to do with your background. There's one criterion and one criterion only. It doesn't matter what family you grew up in. It doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter whether the history was good or whether the history was bad. There's only one thing that matters, personal loyalty to Jesus Christ in faith. That's it. You understand that? For those of you who come from good families, good Christian families, that has nothing to do with your standing before God. And those of you who don't come from that background, hallelujah, it has nothing to do with your standing before God. There's only one thing that matters, only one question before you, just like it was before the centurion. Who do you believe Jesus Christ to be? And if you acknowledge him to be your Savior and your Lord, you are as much a member of the people of God as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you'll sit down at that great banquet. Jesus says there are going to be many who come from all four points of the compass. In other words, not Israel, who will sit down and be part of the covenant people. Amazing. Now, for those of you who are looking for yet another proof of Jesus' deity, this takes quite a lot of pluck unless you're God. Because what he's saying is, I am the definitive interpreter of what the covenant means. He is claiming authority over interpreting the entire Old Testament. That's something that only God has the prerogative to do. Now, there's a contrast at the end of the chapter with the Gadarenes. Now, when Mark tells this story in chapter 5, there's only one demon-possessed man that he focuses on. When Matthew tells it, there are two. And in Mark's account of this same event, Mark's emphasis is the transformation of the demon-possessed man because Mark has a different thematic concern. Matthew has a different issue that he's driving here. He's reporting the same event, but he's emphasizing a different theme. You notice how little attention Matthew pays to the transformation of the demon-possessed men. That's the thing I want to find out more about when I read this. But you notice what Matthew emphasizes is that the demons approach Jesus in exactly the same way as the people in the city. Matthew says that they both begged him. Did you notice that? Verse, um, I've got to find it now because I've got to prove it to you. Sorry. Uh, Verse 31, the demons begged him. Verse 34, 
And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. What's happening here is this, that Matthew is showing us a contrast between the centurions who welcomed Jesus's uh, compassion and approach to be included in the people of God, and then these Gentiles in the city of the Gadarenes, a different set of Gentiles who, though they've seen Jesus's power, and though they've seen him transform the demon-possessed men, they say, we don't want that kind of power around here. If you come, everything is going to change by definition, and I need, we need to keep you away. And Matthew is showing us that there is a wise way to respond to Jesus' compassion, but there's also a tragic way to respond to it. That there are people who, though Jesus has approached them, though Jesus has demonstrated his power, though he has done great things in their presence to authenticate who he is, they turn him away. And friends, I'm worried. I'm worried for any one of you about whom that might be the case. We come back again to the very text that we looked at last week, verse 6 in chapter 7. Jesus is, these are, right, the swine. These are the dogs who reject the pearl of the kingdom, who reject the holy word of the kingdom. They turn Jesus away because they know that if he comes and they let him in, everything's going to change. There's no other way to have him. They would prefer to be demon-possessed. They would be f- prefer to be harassed and helpless than to have Jesus come in and deliver them. And that is tragic. Learn from the centurion. Don't learn from the Gadarenes. And then finally, Jesus' call. Jesus and his disciples. Jesus has given us two healing episodes. He's given us two, excuse me, Matthew has given us two healing episodes. He's given us uh, two episodes of Jesus with the Gentiles, the centurion and the Gadarenes. And now in the middle of chapter 8, he gives us, he gives us two panels about the call to discipleship. The two men who, who break away and then the disciples in the boat. The, those who don't get in the boat with Jesus and those who get in the boat and still fail. Look at the two men in verses 18 through 22. Both of the, they appear out of nowhere, and they both vanish from our sight, don't they? Now, when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That's to go head, head in the Gentile direction. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And that man just disappears, doesn't he? Where does he go? What happened? Well, what happened is that Jesus has told him what the real cost of following him is. It's going to be discomfort And the man disappears because that cost is too high. The second man, who's called a disciple, now you have to be careful with that. What that means is that's somebody who's been following Jesus up to this point. This is not a, um, a rubbernecker. This is somebody who's kind of been in the crowd listening to Jesus. 
And this man comes up to Jesus. Jesus is precipitating a break. He is thinning the crowd out. When he says, let's go to the other side, he is forcing a crisis upon people. He is saying, I'm going over here. Are you coming with me? And so uh, true colors of people's hearts are being revealed. And this man says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, what that probably means is not that the funeral is imminent, but that's an expression that probably means, let me, let me at least take care of my, my, my dad and my family affairs until he dies. And then once I've fulfilled my family obligations, then I can come and join you. And notice Jesus' response. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. That man's obstacle to his discipleship and to following Jesus is family relationships. Comfort family relationships. Neither one of them is willing to pay the same cost that Jesus is willing to pay. Alongside those examples, we think those are tough examples, don't we? I mean, those are so hard. When you think about what Jesus is saying, leave your father, be willing to endure discomfort, to follow me, You think, who are you that you could insist upon such loyalty, that you could be so demanding? And we have to remember, right, we need to to read all these texts as I've been trying to model for you. We need to read them through the lens of the cross, what Jesus is ultimately going to be willing to do. These stories have meaning for us because we know what Jesus was willing to do. He was the shepherd who was willing to be discomforted so that his sheep, right, would be eternally sheltered. He was the son of man who was willing to have no place to lay his head in this world except ultimately in a tomb for his sheep. He was the beloved son of the father who didn't, who left his father's throne, right? Who, who didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was willing... <clears throat> to leave the eternally satisfactory fellowship and harmony of the Trinity in order to embark on the mission that his father had given to him. And ultimately, he knew that that mission for his sheep, for men like these two men and like the disciples who get in the boat, like us, he knew that that mission was going to cost him the ultimate estrangement from his father on the cross, and he did not shrink back. You see, ultimately, the hero in those verses is Jesus, isn't it? Whatever cost they were unwilling to pay, whatever cost you and I are unwilling to pay to follow the shepherd, the shepherd has been willing to pay for us, his sheep. And we see that even more dramatically with the disciples who get in the boat. I mean, I can imagine if I was one of those disciples in the boat thinking, hey, at least we got in the boat. Those two guys broke off. I'm sure they thought very highly of themselves. They've seen this. They're ready to press on. They're thinking about the cost that they've paid. And they're Galilean fishermen. They get in that boat, and sure enough, a storm just happens. Listen, if Jesus can stop the storm, he's the one who starts it. And that storm happens, and sure, they may not have been um, impaired by family loyalty. 
They may not have been impaired by comfort, but as soon as their physical safety is called into question, everything's on the table, you notice? Save us, we are perishing. And Jesus' response, the reason we're authorized to read that in kind of a tough way against the disciples is that's how Jesus responds. He doesn't get up and say, don't worry, I've got this in hand. He indicts them. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He's holding them accountable for everything that he has shown them up to this point. And he's saying, your fear is not warranted. If you knew who I was, just as, just as it, would be no, it should be no issue if the two men who broke off from me knew who I was, they would be willing to pay any cost to follow me. So if you really knew who I was and really believed who I was, you would not worry about your physical death. And you know, I thought a lot about this episode. I thought... Because I am a man who is just defined by fear. And if you got three hours, we can talk about all of them. So I hear Jesus' challenge very powerfully. And so this week, as I was wrestling with the text, I thought, well, well wait a second. You, you know, it makes me wonder, did the wrong guys get in the boat? I mean, shouldn't the centurion have gotten in the boat? He believed Jesus. He had the greatest faith in Israel. Why did Jesus bring the guys who didn't have as much faith as the centurion, why did he get those guys in the boat? Why didn't he say, you know, you guys, stay on shore. I'm bringing that centurion. You realize how important it is that that's not what he did? Do you realize how thankful we should be that these guys snapped? Friends, if they didn't snap... If they were in that boat and that storm came up, it was obviously a bad one because Galilean fishermen who'd spent their entire adult lives on the Sea of Galilee, they were shaking in their sandals. And if they had just gone through that, then you and I would draw as a conclusion from that that we have to be supermen in order to be followers of Jesus. And there are no supermen. The reason it is so wonderful that Jesus brings men in the boat who he knows are going to snap, he brings them in the boat so they'll snap, is because this is never about the strength of the disciples. It's about the strength of the shepherd. Jesus takes the two men and brings them to their breaking point with the cost of discipleship. Jesus takes those who have already followed him and he brings them to the point where they snap under the pressure of following him. Yes, so they'll be humbled. Yes, so they'll see his power. Yeah, it's an amazing thing that he can, with a word, take a storm, and with a word, not just have it calm down, but go all the way to a great calm. That's a great thing about that story. But that's not Matthew's main point here. Of course Jesus is God. Of course he has control over nature. The real point here is that Jesus entered the disciples' danger with them. He was in the boat with them. 
and he was stronger than they were. He was not afraid. He pressed on. He did not shrink back. He kept going. And friends, it's an amazing thing to see Jesus calm the ocean, calm the storm, to see such power, to see him not shrink back from what he would be called to do for his sheep, to see that his compassion for us was a compassion that would lead him into the greatest of all danger for his sheep. That's a great thing. But I just wonder if in the years after these events and in the years after the Lord's resurrection, as the disciples were reflecting on this event, I wonder if what they recognized as the most amazing thing about the story and about Jesus' demonstration of his power here is how marvelous it made it look when he didn't use that same power to insulate himself against the greatest danger. You see, that's what sweeps me off my feet. It's not that he controls nature, but that he didn't use that same power when he willingly entered the greatest of all storms and put himself in the greatest of all danger, our danger which is to be under the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God against our sins. That's our greatest danger. Not terrorists, not a triple-dip recession, not cancer. And what we see from these stories is that Jesus' compassion led him all the way in, and he never shrunk back and went all the way in so that we wouldn't have to. Now, friends, if you think about that, what you'll you'll see is a shepherd who is worthy of you following him. A shepherd who has held, since he's held nothing back from you, how could you possibly hold any part of yourself back from him? A shepherd who has gone ahead of you to the deepest, darkest danger for you so that when he calls you to enter something dangerous or hard, you know that he has already gone way ahead of you. Friends, how could we not follow a shepherd like that? How could we not love a shepherd like that? How could we withhold anything from him? Let's pray. Lord, when you say, follow me, grant that we would. We pray in your name. Amen.